I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the Gospel of Mark, to Mark chapter 3. As we continue to make our way through this account of Jesus' earthly ministry, and our reading begins this morning at verse 20, we'll go through verse 35. Let's give attention to the word of the Lord. Then he, that is Jesus, went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came, (coughs) and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister, and mother. Let's ask the Lord to help us to discern his will as we consider it together. Our Father in heaven, we ask for the gift of your Holy Spirit to lead us as we sit under your preached word this morning. We ask that you would in every way receive glory, that you would guard us from error, that you would cut deep wherever necessary, but also that you would bring comforting waters to anyone who has need of the promises in this passage. We ask this morning that you would please prepare us to not only receive and benefit from these things that we hear and learn, but to be ready to communicate effectively to others about these things. Enable us, Lord, as those who are called to carry forth the ministry of your word, whether formally or as members of your church. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This section of Mark's gospel forms something of a structural sandwich. It's a bit of a structural sandwich where the beginning and the end are related to one another, 
And then we have a middle section that's like the meat. And the beginning and the end have to do with the themes of Jesus' family coming down to seize him. In all probability to bind him, that's typically how that word is used, because they think he's lost his mind, maybe even he has an unclean spirit. And so that's the bread at the beginning and the end of this section. But in the middle, the meat is full of irony. Because Jesus is having a discussion with people, and he's explaining to them the reason why he's able to heal actual madmen, even as his family thinks he's lost his mind, and the reason why he's able to cast out actual unclean spirits, even as people are accusing him of having an unclean spirit, is because he has begun to bind the enemy, to bind Satan. So as these family members are coming, thinking that they need to bind him, we find here in the midst of it that Jesus is the one who's doing the actual binding. And so this whole unit here is related, it's connected, but it's too much for one sermon. And so this morning, we are not going to focus on the middle part. We're going to return to that in a future sermon and dig into the doctrinal meat to deal with questions like, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean that in some sense Satan is bound? What is the nature of Jesus' kingdom? All of those things are absolutely worthy of discussing, but not in this sermon. In this sermon, instead, we are going to just eat the bread. We are going to focus on the beginning and the end portions that have to do with Jesus' divided household. Because one of the themes that is contained in this whole section here is the matter of spiritually divided households or kingdoms. And we find that Jesus' own natural household was deeply divided against him. And that is the experience of, if not every, certainly many Christians as well that your natural family is divided with respect to who Jesus is or what he calls us to. And this morning, Christ sets before you through this passage the promise, the assurance, the comfort that his spiritual family has an everlasting unity that ultimately will be of greater consolation. And we have to have that deeply ingrained in us if we are to persevere in what he's called us to. And he says that to us, he commands that to us as someone who has been through it. On the one hand, it should be enough, really it ought to be enough, to just say God is omniscient and therefore he knows. But we are weak creatures and it's of great comfort to see that Jesus has actually gone through the things that we're going through. And so the Holy Spirit would lay these things upon you this morning. Now as we consider this passage, we're going to do so under three main headings. First, we're going to just look at the historical facts of the division within Jesus' natural household. And then we are going to contrast that with the unity that he describes in his spiritual family. And then finally, we'll have a, a time for reflections and applications on what that means for us as those who have trusted in him or even possibly who have not trusted in him. And so that's the basic structure we're going to follow before we go any further, though, before we get into any main division, let's just clarify what Mark means by one of the terms that you have in front of you. If you're using an ESV, an English Standard Version of the Bible, as most of you, I imagine, are, then in verse 20, you see the word family there. And I want you to think about that for a moment. It says his family came to him. 
Now that definitely includes, according to verse 31, Jesus' mother and his brothers, plural. We don't know exactly how many he had. His mother and his brothers are included. However, the term that Mark uses here is not, and you're just going to have to trust me for the moment on this, and you can look it up later. It's not the typical Greek term used of one's immediate relatives sharing the same residence. It's not the family only who would live in a house with you. The literal terms that are used here is not just one word. The term that Mark uses here, the phrase is, his own people came to him. Kind of like we could say, if I went back home to Oceanside, oh, those are my people. Jesus' own people are coming to him. And so that includes here his mother and his brothers coming to him. And Jesus has returned to the place of his residence. He's gone home now. But in all likelihood, this would include uncles, cousins. This might include friends, close neighbors. This is a, a group of people who have known Jesus for a long time. It's not just two or three people, but it's a group of people who are now coming. So with that in mind now, consider the division that exists among Jesus' own people. The people who should know him the best, should trust him, should recognize who he is based on how he's lived. And yet, verse 20, this is what we find. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And what a, what a picture that is. Jesus and the disciples can't even get a meal because there's so many people surrounding him in his home area. This is a, a dense crowd of people yearning to know what Jesus has to say. And by the time that his family does get to him, they find that Jesus, rather than eating, he's dishing out spiritual food. Everybody's around him, and he's just talking, and people are eating it up. And this says something about the character of Jesus and his priorities as he sets his own needs here, even secondary at this moment, to feeding the crowd. And then it says, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. Now, Jesus has been gone for a while, and the family doesn't know in which area he is at, but we do know they're not among the group trying to follow Jesus and learn from him. Just previously, remember, we learned that people were coming from faraway nations, coming down from hundreds of miles to hear Jesus. But his family was not present. Rather, it says, when they heard it, they went out to seize him. That doesn't mean that every last one of them was in doubt of Jesus calling from God. Mary at least, Mary at least knew the truth. She had been visited by the angel. She was treasuring these things up in her heart. Just a little bit before this, she asked Jesus, she requests of him to perform a miracle at the wedding in Cana. And so Mary believed. Why is she here? I would presume that like any mother who sees a posse going out after their child, she is concerned and she wants to be there. She doesn't know what's going to happen. But the majority think that Jesus is out of his mind. That's the text. John chapter 7 <coughs> says explicitly that his brothers mocked him in unbelief. Compare that with what it says in Mark chapter 6. If you were to flip over and look there. Mark 6 in verse 4, Jesus says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives. And there's some practical reasons for that, why it's hard for us to receive the teaching of God from people that we're close to. Sometimes you just, you feel like, 
I know all of this person's faults. And I've frequently thought about that, just how difficult it must be for, say, the wives and the children of pastors to sit under preaching, or their own immediate family, if, if I had my parents here, and how difficult perhaps it would be for them to hear. And we have to be on guard. The word is still the word, regardless of who it comes from. Even if, in the case of, say, the prophet Balaam, if you're being spoken to by a donkey, if it's the Lord's word, we have to be receptive to it. But in the case of Jesus, they weren't, it's not as if they had observed any faults with him. They had seen more than anyone else for 30 years a life immaculate, perfectly clean from all sin, just the right responses. And this is another reminder of a fact. To a person with a hard heart, the right thing looks like the wrong thing. And they don't love the way of righteousness. And it is distorted by their sin. And so, as a believer, you may be doing more or less the right thing in your family, and your family could still look at it and say, no, I'm not listening to this from you. I don't want anything to do with what you're saying. Jesus experiences that from his brothers, and it's another reminder, too, that faith does not run through the blood. Frequently in God's providence, he does work covenantally, where the children of a believer come to faith, but very frequently, it's not all of the children. We shouldn't be astounded at that. It's a tree where there are these branches that grow out naturally, but it's also a tree where, according to Romans chapter 11, branches are broken off. Not everyone believes. And so we should never presume that even if you were Jesus' blood relative, that you're just going to believe. And this underscores to us providentially that it must be of grace. We pray for miracles with our children, not just Good parenting. Miracles are required. So then what was their plan as they're coming? I think one reading of this, which is possible, <coughs> is that they are moved by a, a measure of compassion. And that may have been a part of it, that they think our older brother has lost his mind. Now, not because he's, per se, acting in a strange way, falling on the ground, talking to walls, but he's making claims that no one makes. And he's allowing crowds of people to follow after him, and he's asserting an authority that is greater than Moses. That's crazy talk, if it's not true. The marvel is, it is true. So it's perfectly reasonable, and everyone who speaks with Jesus, he speaks reasonably even if they don't understand the import of what he's saying, he's clearly coherent. But they're saying, no, no, he can't be that person. He can't be the Messiah. He is out of his mind. And so they want to take him possibly into a kind of protective custody. Because if this gets out any further and now he's making enemies of the leaders, he's in danger. And so it's possible that they're doing this for him. I would suggest to you that there is another possibility. And I incline towards this as being more likely. The term that Mark uses here in verse 21, they went out to seize him. Look at how it's used throughout the Bible. You can use a concordance online to look at that. Overwhelmingly, this means to take forceful or violent possession of a thing, typically to then bind a person up. This is not typically used of just, hey, Jesus, come with us. People are going to hurt you. We got to get you out of here. 
At that period in history, as it is in some parts of the world today, identity is much less individuated. For you children, what I mean by that is, if you do a wrong thing, the shame, the guilt falls upon your whole family and community, not just upon you. And there's a heavy pressure in society then that if somebody in your family says or does something especially that is wrong religiously, you, the family, have to go stop them. In fact, Zechariah 13 verse 30 explicitly states that if there is a false prophet leading the Israelites away from the true God, the duty to apprehend and to slay that prophet is upon the family. And so we don't know what their goal was. What we do know is they are going out to bind, to apprehend, to seize Jesus. Now, here we find them deeply divided against him. And again, just let it sink in for a moment. This just adds a layer to what it means when we read in Scripture that Jesus was a man of sorrows. He's truly human, which means he has a healthy desire for good family relationships. And like ordinary healthy human beings, he wants to be recognized and trusted. And he doesn't have that. His own family has turned against him. When we read in the Gospel of John, he came to his own, and his own received him not. Same language there, his own people. So often we just think of that as, you know, the Jews of that age, his own people. Instead of also narrowing it down and realizing the very persons that he grew up with did not receive him. And so this was a portion of his sorrows. Now let's connect that to verses 31 through 35 and his teaching that you find there as this brings us into the second main division. Contrast what we've seen about the disunity, the division in Jesus' natural household with his teaching about unity in his spiritual household. This is bearing on you. If you trust in Jesus Christ, if he is your savior, if he is your Lord, then he is also your elder brother. And you belong to a different sort of family. You belong to a family that is knit with him. And what does he have to say to us? Look at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. So these are the people seeking to learn from Jesus. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. From which I infer that they are saying, you should stop teaching, set us aside, go deal with them. That's your family. That's, that's why they would say that, right? Your mother and your brothers are outside, they're seeking you, go to them. But Jesus' response indicates a kind of priority that would have been, that could have been understood as offensive to his family because he chooses to remain seated. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. And you could picture his arm out to you this morning if you are one of those who shares this bond with him. Here in this room are his mother and his brothers. He is telling this group of people, I have a bond that is similar to kinship, but in some senses of an even higher order. And I share it with certain people, regardless of whether they are physically related to me. Now, that would include Mary in the sense that she's a believer. But she doesn't have this right simply because of her blood relationship. Or even because she 
or him. But whether or not she meets the description in verse 35. What defines or determines this relationship with Jesus? Look at verse 35 with me. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. We want to be very careful to indicate here, I don't believe Jesus is saying that if you obey X amount, then you will be treated as Jesus' family. He's not describing to us the terms for achieving relationship. Rather, he's describing the way that we would find a family resemblance. On what basis would we associate somebody with a certain family? And here he's saying that obedience to me doesn't create the bond, but it does indicate it. It's the necessary evidence of belonging to the family of God. John chapter 8, Jesus puts it this way. John chapter 8, verses 42 through 44, as he's talking to his opponents. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Our desires do represent outwardly the inward reality of whether or not we have merely a natural birth according to the flesh, sharing the same corruption as our parents before us, all the way back to Adam, or conversely, whether or not we have received the imparted new nature. The whole point of the analogy, besides the fact, when we think about new birth, the whole point of the analogy, besides the fact that it didn't come from you, is that it brings with it a new nature. And therefore, if anybody says that they are the brother or the sister, the the mother of Christ, no matter how much they may make a profession, if by characteristic they do not seek to obey the will of Christ, then they don't belong to his family. And so this is the group that he's saying is connected to him, those who show by their living faith that they are indeed new people. On the other hand, what this means for us is that true believers are not divided. Now, outwardly, they are divided in many ways. Genuine Christians, I don't have to teach you this if you're older than 10. Maybe even younger than that, you're aware of this already. Genuine believers have different opinions on many secondary matters. Doesn't mean those matters aren't important. Doesn't mean they don't have to be contended for. But for instance, genuine Christians have different opinions on, as I just think of a few of the different things that I discussed with people over the past week, that people just ask, Pastor, where do we stand on this? Or what do we think about that? There are differences of view among people who trust Jesus as their Savior on questions of what does the millennium in Revelation chapter 20 refer to? And what is the timeline leading up to Christ's return? Of course, there's differences of opinion there. Questions about whether or not women deacons are legitimate, not even touching women elders, but you have, for instance, the RPCNA, if I recall correctly, does admit women deacons. And so, but they have the same doctrine of salvation. So there's that as a secondary difference. And I'm not saying any of these things are not important or to be held to. But they are secondary to what Jesus is saying. There is a unity that is not broken by all of those secondary things. The length of creation days. And uh, so many others could be added to this. 
But here, Jesus has a bond with certain people that when we take the whole counsel of God together, it cannot be broken. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says that we have been born again by an imperishable seed. It can't die. We are not among those professing Christians who say that genuine believers, regenerate believers, are sometimes lost. We do not believe that. All of God's people persevere to the end because God has placed in them a new life that cannot die. What great comfort to you when you feel, I I just don't even feel like I have any strength to continue. That's right, you don't in yourself. And the best thing you can do in those moments is to cast yourself on the Lord and say, he who began a good work in me is going to have to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. He predestined us. And now we have to build that out from just thinking about that individualistically, just me and God, to you've got a whole family who has been predestined, a whole family in whom the Spirit of God dwells, and that will not be broken. And so as we have these interactions with other Christians who are seeking to do the will of God from the heart, we have to remember that there is essential spiritual unity among the people of God. By way of conclusion, I want to connect that to a few ideas and to reinforce some of those that we've already seen. First, I want to ask a question, and it's not one that I have strong concerns or reservations about any particular person here, but I would be absolutely derelict in my duty as a pastor not to raise it. And that's the question, where are you at in relation to Jesus? Are you among those who in your heart you think, yeah, he was probably out of his mind? It is my grief, and maybe you've had this experience too, that I have known persons, one comes to mind in particular, who at one point served in a church, served as an officer in a church, who later walked away from everything, and I mentioned that last week, I'm talking about a different person, and said, yeah, my, I said, what do you make of Jesus? He said, at the end of the day, I think he, was, I think he wasn't of sane mind, which was so shocking to me, given everything that he knew. And on the subject of blasphemy of the Spirit, I questioned Was this a person doing that, given everything he knows and the way that I believed I had seen the Holy Spirit work in him? I speak especially to those who are raised in the covenant, who are raised as children in the church. Familiarity can breed contempt. Just being around someone or something for so long, we can take it for granted. And some of you have been raised with Jesus, and you, in a sense, have been so close to him But it's not enough for you just to be around Jesus. You must know him and trust him. And one of the marks of the Holy Spirit's work in your life is a a new desire that comes with the spirit of freedom to say, I want to do your will, even as I struggle to do your will. And there's a part of me that resists, that is my flesh. But I can say with conviction, God's way is the best way. And if I could push a button right now and be free of all my sin, I'd smash that button every time. That is in the heart of every genuine Christian. If it's not in you, if you can't say that you want, by God's grace, to be free of your sin, I'm warning you, I don't believe that you're converted. 
I'm not saying that it's perfect and fully formed. I'm saying there's a yearning for the character of our elder brother to be formed in us. Don't settle for anything less than supernatural. And it will require something supernatural to have that. But the miracle of the gospel is that he doesn't tell you to find it in yourself. He says, believe that I'm gracious. This same Jesus, think about how he acted towards his brothers. If you were to compare 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you'd find, it tells us, Paul tells us, that after Jesus was raised from the dead, one of the first people he went to was his brother, James. James, who was never a part of the disciples. James, who mocked Jesus. James, who came to seize Jesus. One of the first people Jesus goes to is James. And then Jesus ends up calling and gifting James to be a leader in the church. A tremendously influential figure. This is the one who came to bind Jesus. And then Jesus comes back to loose and to free James. And if that's the character of Jesus, don't doubt, no matter how much you've spurned Christ or neglected him or abused the privileges of your upbringing, this is a Christ who is full of compassion, full of mercy, who presents himself and says, today is a day of salvation. Now, I want to exhort those who have believed on Christ, as I trust that you make up the vast majority of of persons here. In the first place, I exhort you again. Do not be overwhelmed or offended when God in providence allows your own people to be divided against you and divided against Christ. In Jesus' own life, that is the pattern. And he stands through it so that you might be assured that Christ who is now in you will give you what it takes to stand for him. He doesn't call you to do this in your own strength, but he's also not promising that it's going to be without grief. He is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. It is deeply grieving. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not misunderstand. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Father will be divided against son, mother against daughter. Children will rise up against their own parents and deliver them to judgment. He warned us that this is a consequence. Now, I want to be clear. I am not suggesting at all that we need to bring another sword, a sword of our own faults to it. The gospel is divisive enough. But he warned us that this would happen. And we shouldn't be overwhelmed with offense that the Lord would allow to happen, even if we don't know how to make sense of it. I do want to communicate to you what the scripture says by way of assurance. Matthew 19, verses 29 and following, Jesus says, Everyone who has left father, brother, sister, or mother for my sake will receive a hundredfold in the age to come, and inherit eternal life. He knows how to dry tears. He knows how to heal. But you have a calling that you're warned for to stand with him, to be united with him and with his people. And there's the temptation to want to turn back for ease or because of our natural bonds, which are real and important. 
But Christ says, my kingdom will take priority. And anyone who denies me before man, I will deny them. That'd be a, a symptom again that you don't know him. I don't at all think that that's easy. Let me give you some counsel, and this comes simply as pastoral counsel. But it's one of the most common questions I receive. This is not just a few of you going through this. This is very, very common. How do you relate to your unbelieving relatives now, especially the ones who you feel don't want to hear it? Are you being unfaithful if you don't keep telling them again and again and laying it out to them again and again? Is that what Christ has called you to? And I would exhort you, study what it says in Peter's epistle where he says to wives who are married to unbelieving husbands, he tells those wives, let your good conduct speak. And perhaps your husbands will be one without a word to the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that anybody is saved without hearing and understanding the words of the gospel. But he's saying they've already heard it. These men have already heard everything that they were willing to hear. Now is the time to live in such a way, to be a persistent presence of grace and love, that if God should open their hearts to receive anything, speak then. I would urge you, Keep the door open. If they want to walk out, that's their decision. But do what you can, and that can mean telling somebody very frankly, look, I know that we've talked about my Christian faith and about our beliefs about this many times. I just want you to know I'm always open to talking about that, and I want you to know I'm going to love you regardless of how you respond. No matter how you feel about my faith, I love you. And I love you because I'm your relative. I also love you because Christ has given me a gracious love for you. And so we don't have to talk about this, but I want you to know I'm willing to talk about this. That's as much as you may get in many of your households. Trust the Lord to use that. That's why it's talked about that way in 1 Peter. Some are one that way. It's not simple. And then lastly, I, I want to exhort all of us together, and as it relates to our broader community, seek to exhibit that unity that we have in Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying compromise your convictions, but it's the way we hold our convictions. 1 Peter 1 verse 22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living, abiding word of God. What should be the consequence of the new birth? Earnest, sincere love for everyone who's in the family of Christ. And that means if you know that you have a strong disagreement with somebody, even before you speak with them, you might pray, Lord God, please bless them. And if I'm the one who's wrong, show me. And if they're the one who's wrong, show them. But I'm praying for your blessing upon them, Lord. Don't view those who are seeking to obey Christ from the heart as your enemies. View them as co-laborers who are, in your opinion, swinging the hammer wrong. And they need training. Pull them aside and deal graciously. But one of the great, one of the concerns of this age, I think, that social media has all the more enabled and, and fostered is a dying of that brotherly regard in the public sphere. 
May that never seep into how we relate to one another, to be quick uh, to, to a kind of wrath or, or arrogance that doesn't belong in the family of Christ. More could be said and shall not. Again, we'll return to these subjects in a future sermon. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your son to be our elder brother and to rescue us, to free us from our uncleanness, from our madness, and to bring us safely into your family. We pray that you would strengthen us to walk in the path of the cross, even when it means that we are disapproved in one way or another or, or alienated from those that we long to do good to and to have union with. We pray that you would impress upon us deeply the everlasting bond that we have not only with our Savior, but with all of those who know him. Help us to draw comfort in the present from the knowledge of a future which is sure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.